0: Hello, welcome to episode 128 of the Cricket Her Weekly. We are outside Lord's Cricket Ground in London. We have just watched the Invincibles defeat the Brave for the second year running in the women's 100 final. Um, But it was a bit closer than it maybe should have been, Sid.
1: Yeah, I think, well, I mean, last year we had that awesome performance from Marizane Cat, which kind of, in a way, killed the game quite early on in the second innings because she just blew the, the Brave away. That wasn't quite what happened this time, was it? Um, but uh, at the end of the day, the Brave just didn't have, you know, didn't have enough guns on their decks um, you know they w- went along at a run of ball uh, they posted uh, what was it, 101 and it just wasn't enough runs and uh, you know Im- the Invincibles were clearly quite quickly at a point especially after Capsi's cameo where all they needed to do was poodle along to win the game and they were able to do that weren't they
0: yeah they just about were. it does feel very much like they kind of crawled across the line rather than leaping across it, which they did in last year's final, as you say. And, and you, you just kind of think like posting 101 in the first innings is not normally anything like enough in the women's 100. Um, so actually, it was quite a special performance with the ball in some ways by Brave to restrict invincibles.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. Actually, I see it like that. To be honest, um, I think that it was more that Invincibles knew that they didn't have to go a million miles an hour in order to in order to get that win. Um, and especially after Emily Windsor came in, she was kind of you know, she was calm you know she played some shots she didn't totally restrict herself to, to, to just getting Marizanne Cap back on strike which she could have done um, and she hit a couple of boundaries but you know basically she was just like you know all I need to do is to stay here and we're going to win the game and, and she did that um, and I think that she was the, like, the, the really kind of crucial player in the end um, obviously Cap got the player of the match performance again second year running for the bat this time um, and that, and rightly so but without Emily Windsor having stayed with her you know that performance doesn't happen because you know she, she was going to run out of partners. It quite quickly became apparent, didn't it, that the Brave were going to need to bowl them out in order to win the game, and they just couldn't quite take enough wickets. They didn't find, Anya Shrubsoul and Lauren Bell didn't quite find the swing they were looking for up top. Uh, there was a little bit of swing later with the ball, interestingly enough, but not quite enough that they could like run through them in the way that they needed to by that point.
0: Okay, well, I thought that it was tighter than than it um, than it perhaps should have been. Um, and actually it was quite nervy towards the end, and. Um, Emily Windsor did massively um, kind of take the pressure off by hitting that four down the ground um, and I think it was what proved to be the penultimate set um, but actually it was quite tight um, and certainly one of those where you end up doing a little bit of a panicked rewrite. So Over the Invincibles champions for the second year running, well deserved Sid because they came out um, top of both your batting and bowling rankings didn't they?
1: Yeah, um, so last year it was it was actually really interesting last year looking at the the sort of batting and bowling metrics because Invincibles had by far the best bowling metrics, but actually the worst batting metrics. Um, But this year they've they've strengthened the team. They first of all strengthened by buying Lauren Winfield. and Lauren Winfield Hill, and you know that she was obviously you know it's been a really important player for them. Um, and I think she took the the Player of the Tournament award, did she? Or didn't that? I think it was Nat
0: Silver actually.
1: Yeah, um, but she was obviously very close in that. Um, and then of course Susie Bates coming in actually proved crucial. So Susie Bates wasn't originally going to play for them. She was picked up as their extra overseas, as we've discussed in our previous podcast on in pieces. But ended up being a really important part of that. That that sum for them not just because of the fact that she was able to step up to the captaincy but because she was able to you know generally provide runs up top although of course it wasn't her that did it today
0: no, absolutely. I think it's an interesting dynamic that's been going on and kind of rumbling on in the background of Invincible's title defence this time around with the switch up in the captaincy between Danae van Niekerk, who obviously expected um, in, the, in the pre-tournament press that she was doing, she expected to be playing and she expected to be captaining and, Susie, captaining and Susie Bates did not expect to be playing or captaining and they've managed to kind of trade places and switch it up. Um, and have still managed to be successful as a unit, which I think is testament to the players um, themselves, I st- and, and probably to Susie Bates as a person as well, actually, in terms of being able to handle that situation in a sort of diplomatic way. Um, and I, yeah, I do think that it's, it wasn't a particularly great thing um, for the for the Invincibles management to um, put their players through, um, but the players have kind of come through it and ultimately been successful. Um, And I was going to write in my Guardian piece, but I ran out of words. Um, I was going to write that actually it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of, we've said that, well, I've certainly said that I think that the policy of having four overseas should be reviewed because then you end up with, you're paying players a lot of money to come over to England for a few weeks and sit here and not do anything. And that money would be better spent on your lower tier domestic players, giving them a bit of a pay rise. Um, So if they do review that, what are Invincibles going to do? who are they going to get rid of which of their four players so that's going to be that's going to be a tricky one uh, but anyway that is a question for next season for now Invincibles will be celebrating and rightly so um, so in terms of the hundred overall this year Sid there are probably a couple of questions uh, big questions about the future of the tournament and what it might look like next year that we might want to talk about um, the first is, um, and this is something that um, Beth Barrett-Wild, as, head of the, as the ECB head of the Women's 100, has been asked about a couple of times, relating to should there be a draft for the Women's 100? Because at the moment there isn't a draft. Um, it's actually done on a kind of case-by-case basis. I believe that the teams have individual negotiations with the players um, and trying to get them in and, and entice them in and say, oh, we think that we might offer you this much money. Should there be a draft as there is in the Men's 100?
1: Well, I mean, I think that, that what, we're, what we're trying to do here is address a particular problem, right? The particular problem is that we're already in a situation after just two years of this tournament where it's clear who the top sides are. It's pretty clear who the bottom sides are either. Um, Welsh fire, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, and, you know, people are going, well, how can we, how can we address this? Um, and a draft like feels like a panacea. But I'm, I'm not convinced that it actually... You have to understand what, what the purpose of a draft is and what problems it actually solved solves. Uh, A draft works, the the classic example of the draft is the way that it works in American football. But American football is a very, very different setup, Um, and you've got a sort of trickle draft where they draft new players in every year from the college system and it's very clear that there's a very clear pathway through that draft and that draft really is the only serious way into the professional American football system. And that's not something that exists here. You'd have to have different drafts for overseas players, different drafts for domestic players and I'm not even sure quite how you get there from here. I mean do you redraft everybody? That's obviously something that people have asked about and Beth Wild is what What Beth Barrett-Wild is saying is that that doesn't feel realistic at this stage. You don't want to redraft everybody. Um, But on the other hand, if you don't redraft everybody, you're not actually starting really to solve the problem of the fact that we've got this big gap starting to emerge already between the best and the worst
0: yeah I think that one of the issues that you 've got is this if you take all of the marquees of so the England and the international overseas players out of it then, and you look at the quality of the teams then clearly Southern Brave have got the best domestic players and it 's because that reflects what Charlotte Edwards has done with that regional side and that regional setup it's basically vipers but better um, and then you know you 've also got um in terms of the Welsh fire, if you look at their domestic players, that's something that we've talked about as being a little bit of an issue. Um, in the sense of, um, you know, Wales having a slightly weaker structure, they don't have a region, they don't have a regional women's team in Wales, so you've not got that same basis. So even if you kind of say, oh, we'll, we'll just do it for the marquee players, you aren't solving that big problem, are you? Um, so I think that. It is a tricky one and of course the big, the big thing that we don't want to end up with is a situation where you go, oh we'll, we'll just bin it all off and start again from scratch and so any of those um, attachments to players that fans have formed, no we just get rid of those. That doesn't seem like a great idea either. Absolutely. Okay, the other question, um, and I believe, I was talking to Dan Norcross about this the other day, um, who obviously is an um, important commentator on BBC Test Match Special, was saying that they might be going to talk about this on the radio, I don't know if they have or not, because we were obviously at the ground, but should the women's 100 be stand alone? So we're obviously now in a situation where we've had two years of double headers. Um, the double header model seems to be working successfully in the sense of we're getting bigger crowds this year. We've the seen
1: twenty thousand people in here for the women's match ahead of the men's match.
0: Yeah, which is obviously a record. Last year for the women's final, we had seventeen thousand. So, and um, Beth Barrett-Wild also tweeted saying that the overall um, overall num- audience numbers um, at the ground this year is up, despite the fact that they had eight fewer matches this year. Um, and um, yeah, so so the metrics in terms of the double headers seem to be working well for the women, um, but for some reason there's kind of this question about should there be, should we be moving to a standalone model? I suppose partly because that's something that Australia have done with the WBBL um, and have done quite successfully, and maybe that's something that's being talked about because of that.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a question. I if you'd asked me two years ago whether I you know whether I supported the double-headers model I'd have said absolutely no but you know it does seem to have been successful and I, I sort of feel that if it ain't broke don't fix it you know that uh, where we are at the moment it, it really seems to be working very nicely I don't think that there are any particular issues with it so you know do we actually need to fix it what's your perspective Raf?
0: yeah well I was actually thinking about this um, and Often, and, and you know, we we do this as well. We think of double headers as being something that benefits the women, um, because we are getting bigger crowd figures as a result. And um, and actually, potentially, um, I think that we need to we need to look at it from a different perspective. Because I think that potentially we are at a moment with the hundred now, whereby the men need us just as much, if not more, than we need them. And there are a couple of reasons for me saying that. And the first is that clearly the women's hundred, relatively speaking, is a much stronger competition than the men's competition, because we are actually getting the best players from all over the world to play in the women's hundred. The men are not getting that. And the men are often getting people like pulling out or ducking out or going, oh, I'm, I'm busy. and um, They obviously had the, the men's Lord's test right in the middle of the hundred. So the England players, the England men's players weren't gonna play in it. Um, so clearly our competition is better than their competition, in the sense of actually getting the stronger players in. Now, if you think about that from a, from a kind of fan perspective, um, that does actually reflect, I think, in the crowds, because yes, the men do get bigger crowds than we do for the 100. Uh, that's undoubtedly true. Um, so, you know, we, we've got 20,000 for, for the women's final, more people will be coming in for the men's final, but we started from a much lower base than the men did. Um, So, you know, we started from a point where you're getting 200 people coming to a Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy match or a Charlotte Edwards um, Cup match, okay? The men started from a basis where the oval is regularly selling out for men's T20 Blast matches. So they've already got that. Then it's not adding anything in that sense. So, actually, the women's hundred is arguably much more successful than the men's hundred. So if they want the men's hundred to keep being a success, They need to keep the double headers, I think. Otherwise, what's going to happen is, this is my second point, is that the men's um, hundred will uncouple from the women's hundred, and all the people who have been enjoying the women's hundred because it's great cricket, it's all of the most exciting players in the world, and also, crucially, much more family friendly in terms of the fan experience, bringing people along. Bringing your kids along to the women's hundred is a nice experience. Bringing your kids along to the men's hundred There are quite a lot of people having a a boozy time, let's say, um, and it's much more like a a Friday night T20 blast crowd at the Oval. So those people are going to want to come to the women's 100. So they're going to maybe potentially have issues with the men's 100 if they try and decouple it. So I think the men need us as much, if not more, than we need them.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, um, and I think that over and above that, if you're the ECB, your perspective is likely to be that um, you know you you need the women's hundred in order to create a sort of holistic experience across both tournaments, because the fact is that you know the the men's hundred is not the best against the best, and if the men's and women's hundreds were separate tournaments in fact i think the ecb would under be under huge pressure at the moment to abolish the men's tournament because it just hasn't been quite as relatively successful as you say as the women's so i think that sticking them together and keeping them together is probably what makes sense in the medium term Um, but we'll see what they do
0: we will absolutely um now on the related point cricket swiftly moves on as the season happens we know that we're getting an England squad announced in two days time uh, or in one day's time by the time that we release this it's happening on the Monday we're going to get a squad announcement for the matches the internationals England against India um, and now we did have um, a couple of questions come in from Margaret Glossop um, on Twitter um, and she was basically saying so this relates to the England squad um, on the basis of the stats in the hundred are you expecting any surprise additions or omissions for the upcoming series for India Um, She also kind of adds, do some players need a rest? Does Lauren Winfield Hill deserve a place? She thinks that she does. So you have been crunching the numbers a bit this week, haven't you said, with your batting and your bowling stats. So on that basis, is there anyone who you're expecting to see in the England squad? Let's focus on the positives, let's not focus on the omissions. Are there any additions that you're expecting to see?
1: Honestly, I don't really think so. Um, I think that in terms of batting, um, you know, the, we've very much seen that the, the usual suspects perform well, and nobody's really, that's not already kind of part of the squad, has stood up particularly and gone, you know, I, I deserve that spot. Um, obviously, Lauren Winfield-Hill has uh, performed well, um, and there's definitely, you know, she's been keeping wicket and we've been speculating perhaps that she might see that as a route back into the england team um but obviously she remains part of the england squad uh you know she's a centrally contracted player so it wouldn't be that huge a surprise if she did did come back but i'd I, think she probably won't honestly um, the bowling thing's perhaps a little bit more interesting we've seen a couple of uh, outstanding performances over the course of the hundred from non-England bowlers um, Emma Arlett um, has ranked really highly um, you know she's been bowling well she's been taking wickets she's been going at a really good economy rate of course someone that was that was very unlucky to miss out on a couple of she was been part of a couple of England squads and has missed out on selection and um, wasn't selected last year then had uh, after long after effects of Covid this year and, um, and missed out um, so she's someone that definitely could be included. Uh, who else have we got? Sophia Smale. Um, she's she's come through and you know she's taken the hundred by storm. Really, she's been almost this year's CAPC. Um I just wrote that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that obviously her issue is that she's a left-arm spinner, and um, Sophie Eccleston's got that gig, c- gig sewn up. So uh, at the moment, unless there's an injury to Sophie Eccleston, then I can't see her getting in the squad at this stage. Um, although, they're definitely, and you know, I think the challenge she's almost certainly going to go to the T20 uh, Under-19 World Cup. So that'll be a, you know a positive for her that she's achieved. I'm not sure she'd necessarily been expecting to go to that, you know, four or five months ago. But now she'll be one of the first names on that list. So that's uh, you know. That's that's definitely someone I think we'll be seeing more of in future.
0: Great, um, yeah I think you might be right about Smail although there's nothing to say that you can't play two left arm spinners in the same in the same team. Um, oh no,
1: I think that's in the laws, that's law 27x <laughs> Raf.
0: Um, and on form you'd have to say Emily Arler will probably displace um, somebody else in that team, um, it depends how much how much attention they actually pay to the 100 as a competition which in itself is a question that we unfortunately are not qualified to answer. You'd have to have a chat to Heather Knight and Lisa Kitely about that one. I think the Winfield Hill thing is interesting because England's strategy for a long time now has been to Um, persist with Amy Jones because she's the best keeper but by miles the best keeper um, but even though her batting has been very inconsistent actually what Lauren Winfield Hill has shown this tournament is hello I'm going to put my hand up as the very consistent batter um, and my keeping might not be as good but maybe you should change your your tactics England and think about picking somebody who's less of a good keeper but a better batter don't know Uh, That would obviously be a big about turn for England if they were going to do that. But I think, as you say, that might be um, Lauren Winfield Hill's aim, ultimately, her her way to crack back into the England team. Now, what's going to be one of the really interesting things about this upcoming series against India is actually going to be that um, it's going to be Lisa Kitely's last series as coach um, and there has been continued chat around that, um, partly on the basis that you know we've been playing in the 100 and um, or, you know, the, the players and the coaches have been in the 100 and Charlotte Edwards is obviously one of the coaches who's reached the finals today and she's been asked at least three or four times is she going to apply.
1: See Once <laughs> by RAF last night <laughs> as she was trying to get on the bus.
0: The verdict appears to be both what she said to me and what she said to everyone else the verdict appears to be she hasn't decided yet she needs to sit down and have a think about it and that's absolutely fair enough because you know she's been chock-a-block with cricket since um lisa kightley announced her decision so fine. Um, on the other hand, there has been some interesting stuff because Heather Knight has been doing commentary for the 100 and has been asked a few times um, and there was one interview as well with Crickinfo Info this week where they asked her, you know, who do you think or do you think that Charlotte Edwards should be the next England coach? And she's, Heather Knight's kind of got this, this line that she's been crossing out which is, um, I've actually got the extract from the Quick from the Info piece. Um, I'm not sure she'll go for it, to be honest. She's done brilliant things down at Vipers, but I guess the thing for her to decide is whether it's too soon to coach some of the senior players in the side that she played with. I'm pretty confident she'll coach England at some point, but whether now's the right time is up to her. And she said something very similar to that actually um, on the BBC during the Eliminator. So that's obviously, as I say, that's that's her kind of standard line. That she's that she's trotting out a bit, um, and I think that that's I think that that's really interesting because she's trying to be diplomatic, um, but it seems fairly obvious that well, it just it just feels like she's trying to say actually I think it's a bit too soon and I'm not sure that we'd work very well together potentially because um, we played together and therefore it's you know it's a bit too soon you need to wait a couple more years and then I won't be captain anymore I'll maybe even be retired and then that's fine you can fill your boots Lottie. So that's, that's actually kind of interesting that, that Heather Knight's come out and said that. Um, so on that, I, I don't know whether that will have an effect on um, Charlotte Edwards' decision about whether or not she runs. You would hope that she's going to kind of talk to a variety of people um, and, and make a decision you know, on, on the basis of lots of different people's opinion. But it's been interesting to, to hear Heather Knight say that. Um, I think maybe we'll we'll wrap up there, Sid. Um, we've really enjoyed the hundred, haven't we? I feel like it's been pretty successful. Um, certainly from a crowd perspective, as we've been saying, um, and yeah, you know, yeah, we've enjoyed it. But it's it's back into the England stuff. This time next week and also the rachel Hayhoe Flint trophy resuming um back to your beloved vipers on friday and sunday um we're excited about that i know you're excited about that you can put your orange shirt back on ditch the green and get back to what you really love sid <laughs> thanks for tuning in everybody see you next week bye